Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greetings and welcome to Animal Instinct here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Celia Kutcher, also known as the Food Healer. And today we're going to be talking to Adrienne Weissach all about her company, Animal Intuition, based in Detroit. Adrienne works in animal communication, so we're going to talk all about that. It's not like the animal communicators I've had on in the past. This is something new or a little more unusual than what we had before, but it's also super important, so I'm really excited to talk to her and share the information with you guys. So, Adrian, are you there? I am. Yay! How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out. I know you're in Detroit, so I'm really excited to have you on. A lot of my shows are local, so we're going to talk about Detroit a little bit today and all the good things you do with the doggies out there. That sounds great. Yay. So, let's start by talking about your background um, where, and what got you to where you are with animals. Like many young girls, I wanted to be a veterinarian from the time I could remember. I was glued to my dog. I was very interested in going to veterinary school. After I graduated from high school, I didn't have a college fund or any way to pay for college, so I started working at a local veterinary hospital. Mm-hmm. By the time I graduated, which took 10 years because I was working, um, I got degrees in biochemistry and molecular biology from University of Michigan. By the time I graduated, I realized that a lot of what I had wanted to do, what I thought becoming a veterinarian was, I already did working as a veterinary technician. Mm -hmm. I was able to be an animal advocate. I was able to be there and care for them and do the exciting work and do the fun work and the gratifying work without another $100,000 in student loans. Nice. And without having to do all the paperwork that comes along with being a a veterinarian. So I decided to really pursue a different way of helping, uh, and I went off to UCLA to pursue my Ph.D. in neuroscience. Which is amazing. You're really smart. I'm really impressed. (laughs) (laughs) At least I'm good at school. I I know that much. I don't know about the rest of it. About two and a half years into my Ph.D., I really just didn't have the funding to keep going, but was interested in taking that sort of academic approach to the thing that I loved, which was interacting with animals. Mm -hmm. So I really started to take that deep scientific approach and mix it with my really intense like personal ethic about how animals should be treated. And as I continued to work as a veterinary technician after not being able to finish graduate school, I realized that, that there was a real calling for me there to help people and their animals and not just be kind of their last-ditch hope when they came into my emergency room. Mm-hmm. So tell everybody basically what you do. I help people really learn how to understand a good relationship with their animals. A lot of people get, you know, information from friends, from neighbors, that that isn't always the best information about how you can interact with your dog and have a happy relationship with your dog. As an aside, I don't like to use the word pet. Mm -hmm. I try not to use it, so if it seems like I'm using weird language, that's, that's why. There's something about the connotation of the word pet in terms of owning a living, feeling being. Mm -hmm. That kind of bothers me. So I use animal guardians, animal protectors, dog friends, lots of things like that. So 
I help people really understand what their animals are trying to tell them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's just through um, really simple, simple tasks of giving them examples of when your dog does this, he might be trying to tell you this. Cool. Cool. So, I mean, common question for people that deal with this kind of thing. Are you a psychic? <laughs> I am not a psychic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I have a really deeply scientific-based approach. Um, it could probably come across looking a little bit psychic to some people, but I think that's probably just 20 years of working in veterinary medicine um, that has taught me a lot. I think that I've worked with a lot of wonderful people in veterinary medicine who Mm -hmm. taught me a lot about interpreting the nonverbal signs that dogs and cats are giving us. I mean, what you do, I think, is brilliant, and I'm kind of amazed that it's not something that's in our common vocabulary at this point for for um, people that have animals, because it's it's really something that, I mean, it just seems so obvious. You know what I mean? And then for you, I love the fact that you came along and was like, no, we need to teach these people to really learn how to communicate with their animals. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really obvious, and actually the hardest part for me in developing my consulting business was was feeling like that there's a deep enough value here that people will pay me just to know this yeah. and to be able to explain it to them. And I'm such a pragmatic and practical person that that was kind of a big hump to overcome. Mm. So, like, do you get people contacting you that are looking for, like, psychic communicators? I get people contacting me for just about everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, you know, and once people here I work with animals, I I get the greatest stories and have fantastic interactions with people. And some of the most wonderfully weird people in the world are animal lovers. Absolutely. Um, But thankfully, there's a ton of people who work in the area um, of animals that can provide much better services than I can. If someone's looking for a psychic, if someone's looking for, you know, I don't do puppy training Mm -hmm. because there's a a lot of people who do a great job at puppy training. Totally. I'm much more interested in helping you find out kind of the deeper problems, solve those deeper issues, develop those deeper relationships. There's a ton of science supporting what those deep relationships can do, not just for an individual, but for an entire community. See, and that's what I love about what you do, because, I mean, you know, with no disrespect to animal communicators at all, I've had a couple on the show, actually, you know, it's people are like, well, how do you know this? And it's like, well, I just know. And I get that. But however, the fact of the matter is, is everything you're doing is science based. And I think that that's incredibly important and really backs up what you do, because it's like, well, how do you know that, you know, Fifi will do this and it's like well because right here if you do the, you know that kind of thing where it's there's been proven studies on this it's not just intuition and feelings which is amazing yeah and you know I call my business animal intuition and a lot of that is just coming from my background that it's not that I necessarily learned how to do what I do it's that I learned that something that comes naturally to me mm-hmm. is not something that comes natural to other people and as I read more and more about it and looked more and more into the studies and followed up with some amazing people who have been doing work in this area since the 60s, nice. I found out that there's a ton of science to back up what essentially I sort of felt in my gut. Mm-hmm. And, it, and now I try, to, I try to really think, you know, okay, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm getting from this dog or this cat and this person. Um, and then before I really make big changes, I take a look at the research. What does the research say about mm-hmm. this? What can I find about this? 
And thankfully, through 20 years of veterinary medicine, I have a really great library at my disposal. Nice. And a lot of really wonderful resources, both online and friends and, and message boards, and all the information is out there. And that's something else, too, which is like, you know, there is tons of information out there, but it also is hard to find the, the stuff that's right. Absolutely. And the, the misinformation is not only entertaining, but really it's, it's fascinating the things that people believe, because when you sit somebody down and talk them through the common sense approach, they can see it. But before they get really talked to the reasoning mm-hmm. about why we're doing what we're doing, uh, I'm really amazed at what some very smart people can believe about their animals. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, definitely. It's, <laughs> I've seen it, too. It's like I had a friend who was too smart for their own good, really, and was just convinced that this one animal, they had a dog who just lived in fear and was terrified of everything. And so anytime he'd react, it was like, see, he hates me. That's why he's doing it. And it's like, well, <laughs> not really, but okay. Well, you know? and, you know, human we're fallible, of course, exactly. and we see things, and if we believe something strongly, we, we want to see the evidence. We, we continue to convince ourselves of the evidence when we see it. Totally. And that really, that's got to help with clients so much. Oh, my God, it's got to be great to be able to go, well, you know, according to blah, blah, this is what happens, or that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and actually there's, um, and it's not even that it's that touchy-feely of a science. There's some really fantastic research just about, for example, like emotional systems. There's a guy named Jack Panskep who in the 60s was doing research setting out what he calls the blue ribbon emotional system. So that is seeking rage, fear, and panic. And these are some of the really basic emotional systems that all mammals feel and some birds. And he says a lot of a lot of animals' reactions, dogs, and even our own reactions can come down to one of these real basic emotional systems. And Mm. if you can figure out how to address what your dog is feeling based on these systems, you're going a long way towards helping your relationship. Totally. And it's the type of thing, like, you know, everybody knows someone that's got some dog that they've had forever. And, you know, I'm not an advocate of this, but usually they walk them off leash and the dog is at their heel. And it seems like they have this unbelievable relationship that's going on, you know, and people are always like, well, it's just that person and that dog. And it's like, no, everyone is pretty much capable of this. If you're willing to learn the cues and, you know, dog speak or cat speak or, you know, not to use that term as a product, but, you know, if you don't know what a certain body language action means you're not going to have a clue understanding anything when, when it comes to them, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, an approach that I really advocate is that, is that you know, maybe not every dog is capable of walking like that. Maybe, yeah. I mean, my dog would be horrible at it. If the second she saw a squirrel, she would be gone. Yeah, my Jack Russell would have just been hit by a car in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I'm, I'm a huge advocate that, that each dog and each person, each relationship is really individual. And when you start taking methods that say dogs are like this mm-hmm. or cats are like this, you're, you're making some mistakes and you're making it harder on yourself. You know, dogs like to play fetch. Well, a lot of dogs don't like to play fetch. If my dog is playing with a ball and I pick it up and throw it, and she, she'll look at me like you jerk, I was playing with that. <laughs> the yard. Totally. It's like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's like, okay, you go get it. Um, so she doesn't care about playing with that kind of stuff. She likes playing in a very different way. And if I'm giving somebody direction about learning new games with their dog, I can't just say, teach him how to play fetch, teach him to sit, teach him to roll over, because that doesn't work for every dog. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for saying that. I was serious. Thank you so much for saying that. Because, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest problems, too, because I work in animal nutrition and human nutrition. And, you know, I constantly get people, what's the best dog food? 
Oh, well, tell me about your dog. You know, what should I be eating? I know nothing about you. I, you know, it's, it's like, um, short of probably more water, I really can't tell you anything else, you know? And so I love the fact that you take the approach that each is an individual because that's what it is. You know, I don't like the blanket things either where it's like all dogs, you know, fill in the blank. It's yeah. like, no, you know, it's not all people fill in the blank. I don't know. All people breathe, maybe, you know? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But yeah, that's, I mean, there's, uh, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems in relationships between animals and humans that can be solved with a very simple approach. Mm. And uh, I think there's a real lack of people talking to their veterinarian about this. It's understandable. Your veterinarian's in a hurry. You're paying to be there. You know, it it costs a lot of money. Um, But veterinarians are a great resource for a lot of basic information. People also forget about take your dog to puppy class, do the little training course. Do some of the basics. Um, you know, a ton of my clients, most of my clients, I would say, I have extremely simple fixes for. Nice. And it's it. Uh, probably ninety percent of my clients I see once. Really. And I never have to see them again. Wow. And it's it, a lot of it's just teaching them how to see what their dog is trying to tell them. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the biggest hump to overcome. Um, I had I, I've had some great clients who really they just needed to be convinced to take their dog on a walk. Wow. And it, it can be that simple. Yeah, I've dealt with a couple of those myself. That, that's, <laughs> it's like okay, here we go. And it, and it's amazing too because a lot of people are like, really. And it's, you know, something like, like they, they tested the huskies that do the Iditarod up in Alaska. And after the completion of the race, they did all these stress tests on these animals, and they were just warming up. And we're talking, I don't remember how far it is. I want to say it's 1,000 miles, but I don't think it's that far. But it's, like, substantially really, really far. So, like, you know, <laughs> walking your husky around the block twice, once a day, is not going to be enough exercise for this animal, you know? No, and they also really need, you know, what else walking does is not just get them exercise. It gets them a little bit of mental stimulation. Yeah. And that's a ton of what animals are, are missing these days. We forget, you know, Temple Grandin, um, I'm sure some of your listeners have heard of her. I She's love a fantastic her. person who writes eloquently about animals. Um, she talks about the, our, our modern society of dogs being in houses and in fenced yards is in a way like a really fancy zoo enclosure. It's true. For your dog. And, and it kind of is. Because if, you're, if you lived in your house, in your yard, and you never saw any other people except through the windows, Ugh. you'd probably turn into a real solid weirdo. Totally. So even if you just get your dog out to walk around, smell some new grass, look at some squirrels, like get excited about some outside stuff. Yeah. That that is as much exercise because it's exercise for the mind as much it is as it is for the body. I love that. I think that's a really good point too. Now, one of the things that you said before that like, you know, people learn all these incorrect things and all these incorrect training methods regarding working with their dogs or cats. I mean, what are some of the most incorrect things that you see on a consistent basis? I would say all those things fall into a single category, a broad category, Mm -hmm. which is people feeling like dogs are wolves. Thank you. Thank you. Um, (laughs) You're my new best friend. I appreciate that. (laughs) So the science says dogs genetically separated from wolves somewhere around 35,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. There's a a lot of back and forth about it because there was interbreeding between dogs and wolf populations. But a really, really long time ago, dogs and wolves have very similar genomes. There's about 0.2% difference in the genomes of a dog and a wolf. Wow. 
That's the exact same difference between a human and a chimpanzee. Well, there you go. So you wouldn't, I don't need to live off of bugs yeah. to be a real dog, just like a dog doesn't need to eat a raw meat diet to be like a wolf. Yeah. It's, dogs are dogs, just like people are people. We're not chimps, and they're not wolves. The, a, a lot of people fall into the, they believe that they need to dominate their dog, mm-hmm. the whole alpha male mm-hmm. thing. That makes me crazy. Yeah, and it's actually totally factually incorrect. It was based, those kinds of studies were based on artificial packs of dogs that were created in zoos. There's been studies for, since 1966 was one of the earliest studies that did a really good job up in Isle Royal in northern Michigan where there's wild wolf packs, studying what the real social structure of wolf packs look like. Mm-hmm. And it has, there's no alpha. They're often families, yeah. which is why you'll see a, a dominant member because it's mom. Yep, thank you. <laughs> so people make a lot of mistakes when they try to take that artificial construct and apply it to a dog who hasn't been a wolf in 35,000 years. And I, I th- thank you so much. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, was, I was studying animal behavior for quite a while, and actually what I learned, because it was based out of the U.K., was that you know some 35,000 years ago around there, that there's actually some, there was a tree-dwelling animal. It was kind of like a squirrel, and actually their DNA is closer to a dog's than the dog and the wolf are. And I can't find this paper anywhere. It's making me crazy. Like, I read it, I studied it, and it's gone into the ether. And I don't know if that means that they found new research, so they pulled it, or what that is. But It's probably back back in there somewhere. But if other people haven't been studying it, then it's pretty easy for it to get get swallowed up. Mm, That makes sense. But I mean, your your point is still valid that there's dogs. Dogs are not wolves. Yeah. And people make a ton of really amazing mistakes when they when they try to force a dog to be like a, a wolf. That would be like sticking me in a zoo enclosure with a chimpanzee. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's a really really good description. <laughs> all right. So I am talking to Adrian Weissock, all about animal. Her company, Animal Intuition, that's based out of Detroit. We need to take a break. We'll be back in about. Two Two minutes, so just hang on. Hello out there, it's Steve Jenkins, I'm with Fairway Markets, White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro, well these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway Butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming you would have, and at Heritage Foods USA you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's Heritage Turkey, Japanese Steaks, Berkshire Pork, or Navajo Churro Lamb Chops is the righteous kind. From healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. 
And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more information. Hey, my name is Chris Kuzmi from Ferment About It. My favorite food is liquid bread, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And we are back. I'm talking. Sorry, I haven't heard that commercial. <laughs> We're talking to Adrian Weissach all about her company, Animal Intuition, based out of Detroit. We're talking about animal communication and really how to communicate with your animal, not psychic stuff. So, <laughs> Adrian, how much of your work is based on like body language and facial cues from the animals? Uh, it's a lot of it is based on body language and facial cues, and I think that the the real the real winner in this story is that we forget that. Dogs have been clearly domesticated and living with humans for 7,000 years, which means they have been studying our nonverbal communication for 7,000 years. Wow. We've really only started to try to figure out what they're telling us, Mm -hmm. but they know what we're telling them. So they're great at trying to give us the information that we need. Mm -hmm. We're not great at always paying attention to what they're trying to say. And, I, I mean, I do the same thing to my same dog, where she'll walk up to me and paw me on the leg. And I'm busy at the computer, so I'm not paying attention to her. Mm-hmm. And she might come around to the other side and paw me on the leg, and I'm still not paying attention to her. And then she barks at me, and I think, what a jerk! Totally. Why are you barking at me? <laughs> but she's been politely trying to ask me to go outside for several minutes, mm-hmm. and I've been ignoring her. Mm-hmm. Uh, dogs can learn, on average, around 300 separate words and phrases, which wow. pushes them at around, uh, you know, like a three- or four-year-old in their ability to understand things. Wow. So they can learn a lot of words. They, are, they have a pretty fluid capability with language. So if I can stand up and say to my dog, do you want to go outside? She perks up and runs to the door. Yep. And it's really just teaching people how to recognize when the dog recognizes what you're saying. Mm-hmm. When your dog is trying to tell you something and how to work with your dog to figure out what they're trying to tell you. And so I'm assuming you work in privates? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Do you work in privates or in group settings? Usually private settings, uh, mostly because so much of what I do is really based on an individual relationship. Totally. totally. I have done a couple of group things, and that's usually, um, I, for a lot of years I did search and rescue, and I occasionally work with, with other groups of working dogs. Mm-hmm. And so it would usually be working dogs, dogs that are used to being in a group and used to working in a group. So, like, how long about does it really take to teach a human enough for them to really get a clue of what their pet is telling them? Uh, Two hours. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, It really depends on the person. Um, But my initial consultation sessions with people are that I go to their house, I meet them, I meet their dog. Um, I like it if the whole family is around if possible and people Mm -hmm. just doing normal things. And I can really observe what the dog is doing and what the dog is watching, who he's paying attention to, how this individual or family interacts with the dog. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually within, and then I, I really get a thorough history from somebody about what is going on, what their usual routines are. By the end of that history and with my observation, I've usually got some tips I can give them for starting to understand what their dog is trying to tell them. Cool. And so by the end of our initial sessions, which are usually about an hour and a half or two hours, I can walk away with someone starting to have the building blocks of really changing their relationship. And that's wonderful. That really, that's fantastic. I mean, 
it, it it seems like when my when we were first talking about doing this interview and stuff, I really figured you would do something like five ten sessions. You know, I love the fact you can get that much information across that quickly. Well, and afterwards, I um, because I worked in veterinary medicine for so long, this is just the way that I like to do things. Yeah. Um, after that session, I take copious notes. I take my laptop, um, take copious notes while I'm there, and mm-hmm. then I tell them all these things verbally, and then I leave, and then I email them the next day an overview of everything that I saw, everything that we talked about, all of my recommendations, um, because it's really easy to forget totally. when you're in an information-rich session to forget about all those little things. Totally. I was just thinking as you're saying that, I'm like, oh, my God, she's so awesome. <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> there have been so many times you go to the vet, you know, and even with the write-up, you're like, wait, what? You know, and so, yeah, this is a lot of new information. I, that, oh, my God, everyone hire Adrian because that, that alone is worth the time and the money, seriously. That, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I used to feel a little disappointed that I didn't get very many callbacks. One thing that somebody gets uh, when they pay me for an initial session is 60 days. Mm-hmm. They can contact me by email, by phone, anytime with questions. And that's free. Once you've once you've had an initial session with me, I'm happy to give you tips, give you pointers, nice. talk you through stuff on the phone, work through some things on email, send you YouTube videos, whatever. So I used to be kind of disappointed that I didn't get a lot of follow-up sessions. Yeah. But then I, a friend said, well, I guess you're just really pretty successful with the first one. Totally. <laughs> don't need more. <laughs> Well, I guess that's a good thing, yeah. Well, it's true, because if you were awful, you would have the Yelp page by now and the one star, you know, wow, I don't know about this chick, so you're doing good. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, you know, I would, I would much rather have people have a great relationship than worry about how they're going to pay me to come back next week. Totally, totally. And then, like we've said, you're in Detroit. So are there any challenges that are really specific to Detroit with everything that's going on right now and, you know, what has been going on for quite a while now with your business? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually just started on a really big project to kind of address the, the chasm of difference between the way people treat their animals, especially in urban environments that have experienced some economic downturns. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you see this in New York, we see it in Detroit, I've seen it in other big cities that I've been in where there's a lot of dogs who are kept as security. Oh, totally. And they live outside, they're tethered year-round in many states, this is totally legal. And I have learned through working with friends of mine at the Michigan Humane Society that do cruelty investigation that about 90% of their calls for cruelty investigation just result in education and no punitive action. Mm. And when I talk to people who have dogs out on tethers, they tend to believe a lot of old wives' tales. These mm. are dogs who've never been to the veterinarian. Oh, These are people just trying to protect their families. Yeah. During the years when the police wouldn't come when we would call them. Yeah. And they just don't have the education. And it sure isn't going to change if I walk up to them and say, you're a big jerk, your dog should live yeah, in your house. Yeah, it. I mean, that's going to do nothing. I mean, I wouldn't react well to that, so I wouldn't want to do that to somebody else. So I've just started on a pilot program um, that's in my neighborhood with my block club, where I'm an active member, really trying to start to change the culture around how people treat their dogs and stop ignoring the fact that there's a really big difference Mm -hmm. in the way different groups of people treat their dogs. And I'm doing that by addressing their security concerns, which are totally valid. Totally. Um, I'm developing an app along with a couple of really great developers that are doing this for super cheap for me because I don't know how to develop apps. <laughs> um, 
But it's really going to be an app that gets information into the hands of people who need it the most. The Michigan Humane Society Cruelty Investigation Team told me most of the people that they go visit do not have laptops, do not have Internet service, but they do have a smartphone. Okay. So the smartphone is how they get information Perfect. and how they interact with the world. So we're going to try and build a really slick, easy-to-use app that gets across information that is not just educational but it's really useful for people. Because mm-hmm. realistically, I would rather have a dog live with somebody who lives outside than go to the shelter. Absolutely. Um, at least that's a dog who has people that love him. They might not always know the best thing to do for their dog. Mm-hmm. But that's much better than a dog who's terrified, who's never been socialized, and is living in a shelter. Totally. Totally. Or is, you know, on, on the watch list and is going to be put down in two or three days, you know. Exactly. And there's, a, there's a, all these people who I talk to because I'm really, really big on accountability. I walk around door to door and give people information. Wow. I'm talking to them about the program. Wow. Um, because I want them to be able to have a resource and someone they can come talk to and be able to build advocates, other advocates for dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I want people to have the information in their hands and know how to know how to use it because, yeah. you know, the animal is the source of their security. And if I can help them have a more secure household by bringing that dog inside, totally, then that's a win for everybody. Totally. And there's a lot of great social science research that says that just seeing a person walking a dog increases feelings of security within your neighborhood. Interesting. So there's a huge social lubricant effect that dogs provide us, which is it gets people out walking around their neighborhood. You take a look at things. You see other people. You interact with other people, which you don't do if you don't leave your house. Yeah. And those are all really beneficial things, in addition to the fact that children who see dogs cared for well learn to develop compassion, appropriate emotional responses, all kinds of other things. That's really cool. Yeah, so another part of the program that I'm working on is going through a group called Red Rover Readers. Mm -hmm. Um, It's based on research out of Stanford University that helps teach kids about really kind care for animals. Oh, I love it. And through, you read them books and stories and ask them to put themselves in the place of animals and try to teach them how to problem solve and develop compassion. Oh, I want to have them on the show. I would love to talk to them. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I think it's a really great program, and they back it up with science, and it's based with current academic standards. So I'm flying out to the Bay Area August 1st to go do my training with them. Awesome. So that I can bring that program back to Detroit and hopefully help some kids in our area start to learn how to be better stewards of animal care. I love it. That's so cool. So we're almost out of time. However, before we go, I want to hear your favorite story. Uh, uh, probably there was this beautiful husky named Tesla and a wonderful man who had just gotten divorced and had two kids. And he was exhausted, and he was emotionally worn out with this energetic dog. He had a doggy door, and the dog jumped his fence every day. Oh, God. The dog was so friendly, he would come home, and his dog would be asleep on his porch. His dog would be asleep on his neighbor's porch. (laughs) Uh, His neighbor came over and told him his dog was sleeping on his neighbor's couch with his dog. (laughs) She was a wonderful dog, but he was losing his mind trying to figure out how to keep his dog from escaping the yard every day. So I came over and met him. Great guy, great family, just a fantastic dog. But 
I could see walking around the backyard exactly how the dog was escaping, and he had gotten advice about getting um, a, an electrified oof, fence oof. or putting up a very high fence, and I said, I think we can do it without doing this. Nice. So what? this is one of the cases where we changed, we changed their whole family's life by getting them to walk their dog. Wow. It was really that Tesla was terribly bored. She was looking for that social interaction, and she was looking for something to do with her mind. Huskies are active, active dogs, as we were talking about earlier. So I got him walking the dog twice a day, play dates with the neighbor dog who he used to break into the house with, (laughs) and activity toys. Awesome. Which were huge for Tesla. And last time I talked to him, it's been six months. Tesla hasn't left the yard once. Yay! Congratulations. (laughs) I I love hearing that stuff. It's like, yes! You know? (laughs) So and that was another one of those. I went over to his house once, and now everybody is happier. Yay. That's amazing. Adrian, I love what you do. I think this is so important. I think we need to get, like, a thousand of you everywhere to, like, <laughs> to help out here. So I worked in a vet, too, and so I know those, that whole scene. And it's, uh, it's amazing how many people come to vets with pets or with animals that they just have no idea what they're doing with them. So I love what you're doing. I think you are amazing. I love your spunk and how much more you're spreading the out and making it really I mean it's a you're, it's a huge drop this is going to be a really big ripple in Detroit and I think that it's really really important so thank you oh thank you so much and where can people find you if they want to talk to you or find out more about your information and all that good stuff the best place to get a hold of me is through my website animalintuition.org beautiful and then do you do phone sessions as well are you capable of that Phone sessions? Yeah. I usually like to meet people in person just because there's all of that nonverbal communication going on. Totally. But I'm happy to talk to people over the phone if, if they're really in need. Okay, perfect. Perfect. I was telling a friend of mine about our interview today, and she's like, wait, I need to call her. So you might get a call from a friend of mine. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> But once again, Adrian, thank you so much. I had a really great time and learned a ton. And like I said, I'm a huge fan of yours. If there's anything I can ever do to help you out, please let me know. And I'm being dead serious here. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, so no, I'm dead serious. If I say that, I mean it. So, like, you know, if you're ever doing something and you need some press or what have you, please contact me because I'm a huge fan of who you are and what you do. So this is oh, awesome. Oh, great. Thank you. That's really kind. Thank you. And so I will be back next week with a brand new show. Until then, uh, keep yourself safe, keep yourself happy. Thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.